Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is David Hallberg. He's invited me to his offices at the American Ballet Theater in Midtown Manhattan, where he is a principal dancer, and he's also the first American to hold a comparative rank uh, with the Bolshoi Ballet in Moscow. And he's also the author of A Body of Work, a new memoir about his remarkable career, including some amazing setbacks and recoveries that we'll be sure to talk about during this conversation. David, it's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, great. Great to be here. Thank you for um, coming down to the offices, the studios. So one of the first things that interested me in your story, uh, one of the first details that sort of jumped out that I wanted to talk about was that you started out as a jazz dancer. I did. You know, my first inspiration for dance was tap and jazz, uh, especially tap, because Fred Astaire was my idol as a kid growing up, and I saw him on the TV screen when I was very young, eight or nine years old, and I just became so enthralled with, with how he moved, with how he danced, you know, the whole nine yards. He was an amazing, amazing dancer. And you talk about that shift that happened for you in terms of your interests. At first you were very hesitant about about ballet because jazz and tap, it was very freeform, very mm. almost, you know, improvisational, yeah. whereas you saw ballet as very rigid. I actually saw ballet as boring. It did not interest me. It, it seemed stale, it seemed dusty. Jazz was something I really, I could express myself. You know, technique didn't matter so much. It was more just like doing the routines, doing the combinations, and, and finding your own kind of creative expression. But then something switched. I mean, something clicked when I was a teenager. And then I, I absolutely did a 180. I shed my, my jazz days and, you know, my, my tap dancing, all of that, and went over to ballet. And ballet just became even more of an obsession than what jazz and tap was before. Part of that obsession, you know, there's this real current throughout the entire memoir. In this particular case, it became an obsessiveness over technique. You know, you write about how sort of your constant refrain to yourself during a lot of your training, and even well into your career, was, you know, don't fuck this up. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it speaks to a real tension throughout your career between the sort of the creativity and the expressiveness and the perfection of technique, that that's something that you personally wrestled with a lot. Absolutely. When I first started training in ballet, really kind of cl strict classical training, I was obsessed with the perfection of it. I was, I was so fascinated that it was never good enough. And my teacher, rightfully so, instilled that in me. It was never good enough what I, what I worked with him on. I carried that into the beginning uh, years of my career. I really, I really was obsessed with just the, the grit, the work, the perfection, doing the perfect pirouette, the perfect jump. And it was never good enough. But then as the years went on and, you know, subsequently the injury I, I went through and the rehabilitation, I again shifted gears. I did a 180 in that I think everyone would agree perfection is unattainable, but I also thought that perfection is sort of boring. It's sort of who wants to be perfect. I think the greatest artists that I'm attracted to, that I, that inspire me the most, or that inspire anyone, are the imperfect artists, the ones who are sort of volatile and and risky and and daring. 
Yeah, and there's a sense in which, you know, all those years that you were telling yourself, don't fuck this up, you thought you were pushing yourself forward, when in a way you were really holding yourself back. Absolutely. It was fear and doubt that held me back. To give it a little bit of context, I would, I would be approaching a jump or a lift on stage in performance, thousands of people watching. And I would, right before I propelled myself into the jump, right before I lifted the ballerina over my head, I thought, don't fuck this up, don't fuck this up, don't fuck this up, meaning don't fail. It stripped me of, first, the confidence to be able to, well, I've rehearsed this, I know how to do this, I'm going to do this in the moment that I actually need to do it. And it just, it really set a standard of, of, of doubt and, and lack of, lack of risk-taking, I think. Yeah, there was somebody very early in, in your career with ABT, shortly after you had come here, you write about how she, she saw you rehearsing and she said, you know, you have everything it takes to be a great dancer right now. Mm. You just don't know it. Absolutely. I'll never forget it. You know, I was in the studio with her. She, she is and was a world-renowned ballerina, Diana Vishnyova is her name. And we were doing rehearsing Sleeping Beauty and I did the male variation in front of her. You know, we were having a joint rehearsal and I finished and she said, you know, usually the ballerina doesn't say much in, in terms of correcting their partner. There's always a coach in the front of the room that corrects us. Mm -hmm. But she piped up and she said exactly what you just said. You know, you just don't know. You have no, you're not carrying yourself like you have it. And that really struck a chord. You know, this sort of self-deprecation and what goes along with that was became very unattractive. And how much of that is possibly connected, or, or I may be completely reaching here, and if I am, tell me. How much of that self-doubt is connected to the bullying that you write about, which not only non-dancer kids in school, but even when you went to, you know, you went to a very prestigious ballet program in Paris as a teenager, mm. and they just made fun of you for being an American, mm. too. So, I mean, you know, mockery and, and bullying and humiliation is... Is something you've had to deal a lot with in your Absolutely. Absolutely. I think what it forced me to do is focus. It's forced me to like really focus in on my work because I didn't have any other distractions. I, did, I wasn't the popular kid. I was being um, made fun of. I was pushed in the back of the studio. In school, you know, even in, in the United States, I was teased and bullied and called every name in the book. And it forced me to really unconsciously hone in on what I love to do. And what I love to do is to dance and work. Work for that. Work in a studio. Express myself, you know, through dance. And all of those setbacks really manifested in a way that it just honed in my, my focus. That focus, you know, we've I've, I've mentioned before that you pushed yourself very hard and you... Uh, alluded to the injury. Let's talk about that injury because that was a big moment for you. You had had sprained ankles before. You'd even broken a bone in your foot before. But this was different. At the beginning, it didn't feel different because I was in a lot of pain. My career was going uh, 180 miles an hour. And I ignored the pain for quite a number of months until it was excruciating. Right. And this is at a time when you were a principal dancer at two companies at different ends of the world. And keeping very full schedules with both of them. 
and and a schedule with other companies as well. I mean, I was just totally run dry. I went in. I I, I thought I had to have surgery. I went in. I to have surgery. I thought I was going to be back six to eight months later. You know, what seemed like a long time, but what ended up, you know, what resulted ended up being that that's just a fraction of the time that I actually was out. And at first I thought, you know, let's do this. Let's, I'll be back in eight months. I've got these scheduled, these performances scheduled at that point, And let's just rehab it quick. And then everything went wrong. I had a, you know, the first surgery was unsuccessful. So I had to have a second surgery to fix the first surgery. That was a year later. And then I realized that I emotionally, physically, mentally lost my willpower. And I didn't know what that felt like because I had always had willpower and determination. And my physically, my body just completely shut down. And so I was left feeling totally lost, totally with no idea where to turn. And it became this thing of, do I give up? I mean, no one ever thinks a career-ending injury will happen to them, but it was happening to me. And I saw people around me sort of giving up, you know? Of course, I had a, I had, I had a support system. I had a you know, physical therapist. I had a whole book of people. But I just sensed people were taking a little bit of a last breath. Yeah. And I but thought, it's, like, it's okay, we still love you. Yeah, even, but, yeah. yeah, but I don't know what to do with you mm -hmm. anymore or with this. Yeah, even if you never dance again, you know, we're with you. And it's like, you know, there's this really powerful moment at the very start of the memoir where at a period when you're still in recovery and you, you say you were out of performance and somebody sees you in intermission and so, you know, yells across the, the theater, is there still hope? Yeah. It's like... Dude. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what something I totally learned through the process is people people do not have a filter. Mm -hmm. It's really amazing. And I talk about that in the book. I, I write about that in the book where I, you know, post surgery I show up at my building and you know, my drunk neighbor is like, Not again you know, and I'm just like, dude, think about what you're saying. Like mm -hmm. here I am on crutches, I can't even walk and you're just like word vomiting on me, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's essentially what I had to get away from. There's another moment there where your mentor here at ABT, when you had hit that low point and you were like, you know, I might have to retire. I might, this, this might be it. But you had an option and he told you that it's like, look, the state you're in right now, you can't quit. Absolutely. You have to pursue the option. He saw something that I didn't see at that point. And what it was, was... I was blind by doubt and failure and, you know, like I said, what could have gone wrong had gone wrong and I just couldn't see any, anything clear anymore. I was so clouded with defeat that he saw it from the outside and he said, you can't see clearly right now. You have to go away. You have to go away and see what you can do away from New York away from the prying eyes, prying audience, you can't give up like this. Because if you give up like this, you will always regret the fact that you you know that you could have given it one last shot. And that's essentially what I did, yeah. you know. Yeah. So you went down to Australia to a program there. And there's a metaphor that's come up when I've talked to the ballerinas in the past. You know, golfers 
when they're working on their game. Mm-hmm. They talk about how they take a swing, for example, yeah, and they break it down into every single micro gesture, every single <laughs> micro action. And ballerinas, when they want to improve their technique, they say that that's a similar process, that you look at every single motion your body takes and correct it and, and make it more sufficient. Yeah. And there was some of that going on, but more importantly, it sounds like you applied that to your, your mental and emotional actions, that you looked at things that you had been doing to yourself your entire life. I, I went down to Australia. I showed up in Melbourne. I shaved my head, which is sacrilege in the ballet world. <laughs> we have to have this kind of long prince hair. And I showed up so emotionally broken, so mentally defeated. And I just realized that I needed to pick up so many pieces of myself physically, mentally, and emotionally. And that's what I did. And I did it. I I couldn't have done it further away. And I did it alone. Again, I had a beautiful support system down there. I mean, they are like family now. But I did most of that in solitude. And that's what I needed to do. I needed to go through it myself, not lean on people to help me get through it. I needed to do it myself. When you came back, you know, at what point during any during all of this did you start thinking about a body of work, the, the, the memoir? Interestingly, I was already writing the memoir before the injury. I was writing about Bolshoi. I was writing about my life in Russia, my, my dancing around the world. You know, I was really um, seeing it through the eyes of, of a healthy dancer, per se. But when I became injured and when I experienced my worst nightmare, you know, what amounted to two and a half years off the stage, I realized that this is the absolute message I have to convey to the reader. And there is a, a thread throughout the book where it opens with me observing what it felt like to dance. The first line is, I remember what it feels like to dance. And there, that thread goes throughout the entire book because it's looking back on my career, looking back on, on Russia, on the high moments, on the low moments, and saying, I hope I can get there one day. And then it goes, you know, through the rehab in, in Australia and essentially to the return return to the stage, which was a major, major moment. And it's interesting to, to learn that you were working on this project even before the injury because you do talk a little bit in the memoir about two similar sounding projects. It's similar sounding in the sense that these were more directly incorporating dance, but they were also incorporating the kinds of autobiographical elements that you were rigorously self-investigating. And and I you know I really made the choice to be completely honest throughout the book and throughout the rehab. It was a an imperative message for me to express that someone from you know the the height of his career and the prime of his career dancing around the world what seems like so such a glamorous life and exciting and stimulating and fulfilling just absolutely plummeted and had to build themselves back up one baby step at a time through the course of actually a very long time you had a very set idea of what you wanted to say in certain aspects of that like there was one project that you write about where you you know, you talked very openly about your frustrations with certain creative limitations or expressive limitations in the ballet world. Uh-huh. 
but then when it seemed like your collaborator wanted you to say you know dump more on the ballet world itself you were like well no i have my problems with the creative limitations but this is a great world you know i think that's i have found that in the creative search period whether you're a dancer or a visual artist or someone anyone who's passionate about what they do and a world that they inhabit and a community that they have it's never perfect you know the ballet world to me there are so many aspects of the ballet world that need updating and refining and you know risk taking and and you know just but that's that's the case in in all fields you know i've i've been very curious as, to look beyond the ballet world for inspiration and creative fulfillment and i have found that outside the ballet world but i also find that inside the ballet world and i also have such a respect for the hundreds of years of technique and tradition honed in to this art form there's something I, i definitely wanted to bring up you know we've talked a little bit here and there about your career with the bolshoi you know as soon as i was reading that passage in the memoir where you are offered a position with the bolshoi and are debating whether or not to accept it Yeah, you know, I'm thinking to myself and, and to be upfront, you do address this eventually. But as you know, as soon as the opportunity to go to Russia presents itself, I'm like, dude, you're a gay man in, you know, headed off to Russia. Yeah. Not what are you thinking necessarily, but you know, you do realize more. I think was more my sort of my attitude. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I I I have found because I've lived in Russia and I've lived here, of course. There are always two sides to the coin. Mhm. Mm and i of course don't justify the the homophobia and the discrimination that occurs in russia or even anywhere in the world but being in moscow being on the ground in moscow living in moscow having friends in moscow although it is a, a homophobic society generally mm -hmm. i have many gay friends in in russia and moscow that live happy comfortable lives and so I wasn't ignorant towards the the sort of risk I was taking as a gay man but again I had to experience it for myself and that's what's been so interesting about living somewhere like that or experiencing any culture in the world is that you may have this preconceived idea of what every Russian or what every Japanese person is like but it's not until you truly experience it that you really know what it is very early in the memoir um when you're talking about the bullying and, and all that there's also a point where you talk about your first boyfriend and then after that it really just pretty much becomes about the ballet and i'm wondering like yeah how much of that is a conscious creative decision in the telling of the story and how much of that may or may not be just that you've been so obsessively focused on your career that it's like well there hasn't really been a love life to write about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um well, it was a conscious decision definitely. Okay. Because I really being bullied so incessantly as kid and figuring out my sexuality in the meantime when I was in my teens. It was important for me to portray that and it was important for me to make the connection between being bullied and being made fun of because not only am I a dancer but I'm you know maybe a little effeminate and people zero in on that sort of maybe behavior per se but it was important for me to say that as well I had this beautiful childhood love 
and we were both experiencing something of the same sex for the first time, but also we were both experiencing love for the first time. And what I wanted to portray was that an experience like that can happen between a man and a woman, between a man and a man, and regardless of what age, because it was so tender, it was so beautiful, it was so pure and simple. And then later on, you know, the, the reason I don't speak about my love life so much is because I really wanted to make the point of my creative process. I, of course, I have a personal life. I've been in long relationships. I've been in um, short relationships. Mm -hmm. I am a, a, a living human being. You know, I don't have a, I haven't shut myself off to love per se. But what was important to me was to really portray the creative hunger. And honestly, it's, it's good that you mentioned that because sometimes you do shut certain things out in your life to fulfill an obsession. And I am, you know, I am an example of that. I, I think my personal life has suffered because of my artistic pursuits. But in the memoir, I really wanted to portray the artistic pursuits more than the personal pursuits. It sounds like since the recovery and since you've returned to, to dancing full-time, that you've been able to do that in a sort of a more balanced and, you know, for lack of a better word, a more integrated way, that you, you are approaching the pursuit of your career in a more healthy fashion. I think it's interesting because I've been back on stage for about 10 months. And in that time, when I was about to get back on stage, I thought, okay, I have to really be conscious of like saying no to people, not overextending myself. But what has manifested is actually this instinctual saying no, this in instinctual ability to know what I'm capable of and know what too much is. And I think that's, it's exciting to know that that's actually instilled in me and it's not torture because before it was torture to say no. It was like I, I wanted to do anything and everything. And now it's, I, I know what I want to do, most importantly. I know what I um, need to do. I know what I can handle. And it comes from a gut instinct and the education that was given to me in Australia about how much I can handle physically about how to take care of my instrument, how to rest my instrument. I mean, it's a whole it's a whole process. You know, you have to push your body as much as you rest your body. Obviously, dance is your primary vehicle for creative expression. But between the autobiographical earlier autobiographical projects and certainly now this memoir, you also have this as a vehicle for for expression as well. You know, moving forward, does that continue to be a vehicle for you or uh, you mean in terms, in terms of, of more writing? Or? You know, interestingly enough, I think it does. I've always harbored my opinions on the art world, on the dance world. Uh, I've never been very vocal about its deficiencies or um, what it can offer even to an audience. But I feel like now that um, I've written the book and the book is out and it's finished, I do feel a sense of um, creative a sense a creative outlet per se to to be able to to write and form an opinion about the world that i inhabit i don't know exactly what form that will take in the future but it's certainly another outlet that i that i plan on using right well that is something to look forward to in in the future for right now there is a body of work it's the memoir by david hallberg it's just been published by touchstone books 
and we've been talking about it on this episode of Life Stories. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you might go to iTunes where you can rate it and uh, give it a bunch of stars and give it a great review, and that makes it easier for other people to find the podcast on iTunes as well. You can also subscribe so that you'll know whenever new episodes come out. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join me again for another episode soon. Take care.